So I had a conversation yesterday with a listener who suggested that he would like to get my opinions and my thoughts about how I would react to things on a more real-time basis. Rather than having a, uh, a podcast that is prescripted quite as much, uh, or something that is running once a week for a set 30 minutes or roughly 30 minute time frame, he wanted me to talk about issues of the day on a more regular basis and more quickly. So this episode here is the first one of those episodes in which I'm going to do that. Uh, but one of the questions he asked is one that's been in the news a lot recently, uh, and he felt that my answer had some uh, information that he wanted to understand that he hadn't known before, and he thought it would be useful. So I'm going to use that as the first quick take, and that issue uh, is the issue of revolutions or the possibilities of revolutions in Iran. So people looking at what's going on in Iran like to point to contrasting demonstrations, the very large demonstrations in support of Qasem Soleimani versus the much smaller demonstrations, but seemingly very brave ones, in opposition to the government that have been happening more recently. So the question that uh, he asked is, is what's going to happen to Iran? Is Iran shaky? Is Iran unstable? Is there any possibility of regime change, uh, in the, uh, given what's going on right now? In order to answer that question, you have to have an understanding of the setup of the Iranian Republic, because it was actually set up in an extremely clever way. Um, Ayatollah Khomeini, who set it up, is, was a brilliant man, uh, and did an excellent job of creating a multi-layered defense against change. It's almost a bit like, uh, like The Matrix, the movie The Matrix, where you have to climb out of layer after layer before you can begin to actually resist the computer program. So the layer that we see most often is the layer at the very top, where we have the supreme leader for life, an Ayatollah, a religious leader, uh, and he is chosen by Council of Guardians. The Council of Guardians, I don't have the exact figures in front of me, but a percentage of the Council of Guardians, I think the half or two-thirds, are chosen by the supreme leader himself, while the remainder are chosen by the parliament. The Council of Guardians can, again, the details I'm a little bit shaky on, I apologize, but the Council of Guardians, I believe, can approve candidates for parliament or for president, and uh, can disapprove of candidates for those situations. And so what you end up with is that the people who go to the parliament or who go to the, uh, or who go to the presidency are people who are pre-approved by a group of people who are themselves pre-approved by the supreme leader. And it's a circular effect. The supreme leader is chosen by the Council of Guardians, and the Council of Guardians is chosen by the supreme leader. What this means is, is that you have within the voting system a bit of a shell game. Uh, because there's no real possibility, even if you were to accidentally vote in people who uh, who were going to maintain policies that weren't in line with what the Supreme Leader wanted, there would be no way to sustain uh, a, uh, an, uh, within the governmental system, within the Constitution, there'd be no way to sustain something that would violate uh, the religious rule of the country. And the reason this is done is quite simple. It is a religious country. It is intended to be a religious country. And just like Western societies, the United States, for example, hold the rule of law to be more important than the rule of any one person or any one party, likewise, uh, the Iranian government is set up to hold the rule of God's law as being above any one person or any one party. And the representative of God's law is a lifetime appointee because that way he's above and beyond any of the standard political pressures that might limit other people. So at the first level, you have this 
shell game of a voting process, shell game of democracy that gives people who are living within the system the feeling that they have a choice. It's like telling your kids, you know, do you, do you want to go to bed now or do you want to go to bed later? Uh, and, and they don't see, they, they have to push to get to the third option, which is that they don't want to get out of bed at all. So when you make a, a choice, when you give people a choice within this sort of system, then you can you can persuade them to go down one of those paths rather than going to a path that says, no, I reject everything that you're doing. We've seen this most darkly, actually, uh, in the Holocaust, in the Shoah, where people were given a choice of one line or another line in some cases, uh, and they really had no idea what they were choosing. But the possibility that they might be choosing life was a possibility that led them to make one of the choices that was presented to them, rather than taking the risk of resisting, uh, resisting their killers. So that's, that's the first level. At the bottom level of the support that the regime has, you've got uh, what's called the besieged militia. And the besieged militia are religious fundamentalists. Um, they're very, very strongly dedicated to the regime. And the, uh, the militia tends to be drawn from the poor, working class groups of people. And I, my understanding is that they were founded out of uh, veterans of the Iran-Iraq war, people who were cannon fodder in that war, who uh, <laughs> used to play a game called uh, Civilization, and they had a soldier type called a fanatic. They were very cheap to raise. Uh, they would do anything you asked, um, and they weren't necessarily all that effective. So the besiege are that fanatic class. The besieged militia are people who are willing to do whatever is necessary to preserve God's law in the country. So if there are people, protesters among the more Western, more secular groups of people, those who are throwing acid in people's faces, those who are shooting guns in the crowds. In the 2008 revolution attempt, we saw a bunch of people on motorcycles, uh, one person driving the motorcycle, the person in the back with, with a machine gun. Um, the besieged militia were the ones doing those sorts of activities. Iran is not a country in which anybody can own a gun. Uh, it's very restricted. Besieged militia have guns. Regular people don't have guns. And the regular Iraqi army, sorry, the regular Iranian army, not the, not the Republican Guard, but the regular army, is generally kept away from any place where they could be a threat to the regime. Uh, they don't want to have armed people who would be angry or resistant to the regime anywhere in a position to, uh, to cause it a threat. And so what happens is, is when you have the lower level street demonstrations or attempted revolutions, you have a ready-made force of people who's willing to do whatever it takes to suppress those sorts of revolutions. So if people decide to go with neither option A nor option B in the elections, but take door C and resist, they're going to be put in a position where, they, uh, where they're killed. Uh, and there's really no recourse that they have. There's no way they have to try and overcome this. In a few cases, they've tried to store, storm besieged militia bases, um, but those have been uh, largely unsuccessful. With the recent economic problems, you might see some cases of besieged militia pulling away because of the economic troubles hitting the poor the worst, as they always do. Um, but, uh, but there's no sign that that's actually happening with any success. And so what you have is a society in which a relatively small group of armed people are able to maintain the regime's value system and the regime's method of governance. Uh, and this would not be a problem in uh, most situations. This wouldn't be a problem in most countries because the external effects would be limited. The internal country having its own methods of suppression is something that they deal with on their own. So for example, Saudi Arabia is more strict from a religious standpoint than Iran is, um, but they export that, their strictness, they export the religion through educational programs and not through uh, violence 
um, active terrorist organizations. Of course, there are terrorists who've come from those educational programs, but the actual Saudi methodology is to export the religious um, the religious teachings to other places, and then those other places can de- develop their own internal, in some cases, terrorist organizations that are related to that religious uh, religious extremism. In the case of Iran, though, Iran is actively pushing into neighboring regimes. They're pushing into Iraq, they're pushing into Syria, they're pushing into Afghanistan, they're pushing into Lebanon. And they've been doing that with a tremendous degree of success um, for a long while, but particularly since the uh, since the Obama administration. So Hezbollah, which literally means the party of God, has franchises in Lebanon, in uh, Syria, in Iraq. Uh, it has franchises in South America, and it has franchises in Africa. The difference between these franchises and the franchises of Al-Qaeda uh, or the Islamic State, is that these are actually backed by a state power. And so Al-Qaeda and Islamic State, they're pretty good at massacring individuals. They're pretty good at uh, machine gunning people or killing people on YouTube or whatever it happens to be. Uh, they don't have ballistic missiles. They don't have the level of technical sophistication and capability. They don't have the depth of resources that Iranian terrorist organizations have. So Iran is a whole different ball of wax in terms of religious uh, organizations and in terms of exporting uh, their way of, uh, of doing things. Now, of course, you could look at the U.S. and say the U.S. also has an ideology, an ideology about the rule of law, about democracy, about uh, essentially secular government that allows for religion within its own space. And we export that. Um, and you, you can certainly make that argument. And we, of course, have state power behind that, which is the argument you often see by those opposed to the United States. So when you look at the mechanisms that they have in place, the country seems a, a lot almost like a drug addict. They, they allowed themselves to take a hit of this religious government early on in, the, in 1979. And ever since they've done that, they haven't been in a position to get off the drug. I know people who've been involved in the effort to resist the regime uh, in a variety of ways. I know people who were militants uh, fighting the regime. And, uh, and they, were, they were soundly defeated. Um, possibly by the same besieged militia. Uh, the system is set up as is extremely stable, extremely uh, well-supported. Just to give a, a quick example of the kind of thing that they do, during protests, they will do use face recognition software and they will arrest family members or people who are involved in the protests in order to control them. One of the amazing things they were doing, and why you'll often see people wearing masks at anti-government protests outside of Iran, is that they take video footage of protests in places like Toronto or Paris, and then they look up the families of the people who were at the protest, and they punish their families for being at the protest. So they've got a very effective way, not only of controlling people within Iran, but controlling people who have Iranian connections outside of the country. So this is really a, a, a brilliant system. Now, the reason it's relevant, the reason I brought up the idea of it almost being like a drug addiction, is because you end up with situations and with drug addicts who made a decision at one point in their lives to start drinking heavily um, or start using uh, methamphetamines or heroin, uh, and they got addicted. And, uh, and that initial decision, which wasn't a very big decision, it wasn't a decision that was meant to be momentous or lifelong in this way, that initial decision led to a road in which they lost control over themselves. Nonetheless, if somebody who's a heroin addict or an alcoholic commits, a, commits a, an infraction, uh, if they run somebody down with their car, if they rob a convenience store, etc., they're held liable for their actions. 
They're not excused because they have the addiction. We might have some extreme cases if somebody else gave them the addiction, excuse them. But for the most part, they're held liable for what they've done. And so the reason this is relevant is because the, uh, the country of Iran, the people of Iran, uh, would be held liable for the actions of their would be liable for the actions of their government. So let's say that Iran were to uh, launch a nuclear attack against Israel. Many people would argue that it would be immoral for Israel to strike back after, let's say, Israel were destroyed. I live here, so I prefer it didn't happen that way. But let's say Israel was destroyed. Many people would be would argue that the destruction that would be caused by a second strike would be unacceptable. And so because of that, you can make the threat of a second strike, but you can't actually morally carry it out. I actually think that isn't the case. I think that the country and the citizens of that country are liable for the actions of the country itself uh, in situations in which they allow this sort of tyrannical regime to take over uh, and they don't resist it. They don't throw off the drug addiction. I think the liability falls on them nonetheless. It might not be the way by the rules of war that are the laws of war that have been developed in the West, but in the Middle East, the conflicts are not between governments. They're not between the court of uh, Prussia versus the court of Austria or something like that. The conflicts are between ethnic and religious groups. And the conflicts are all-encompassing. And so people here don't make a distinction between civilians and combatants in a way that the distinction is made in the West. Um, and of course, Israel, which, which has both cultures and both systems embedded in it, is constantly struggling with, uh, with that divide. But in the case of Iran, there isn't that divide. Uh, and Iran would be, in my opinion, the Iranian people would be liable should their regime undertake this sort of genocidal activity. However, that doesn't mean that we don't have an obligation to help. To give an example, a drug addict might rob a convenience store, but nonetheless, the society around that drug addict should be taking steps to give them the tools to overcome their addiction. We shouldn't just let them be there and wallow and fall and face difficulty after difficulty. Instead, we should be giving them the, the ability to deal with the problem that they have. Because otherwise, you're morally responsible to some degree because they got trapped in because of a bad decision they made, but then they, they can't escape because of a bad decision you made to not help them. And so I think that that applies in the case of Iran as well. The Iranian people, because of the mechanisms that are in place, aren't going to overthrow the regime anytime soon. I'd love to be proven wrong. I'd be delighted to be incorrect. But I don't think that there's any possibility of this regime falling uh, anytime in the near future. They have tremendous controls. Yes, they've lost effectively uh, domain uh, and control, at least temporarily in Lebanon and in Iraq. They've been pushed back because of the fact that they can't pay for their fighters and they can't pay for their charity activities in those countries. The, 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 the threats and the butter of the carrot and the stick that they've been employing to, uh, to gain more control in those countries. But even though they haven't been able to um, maintain control as strongly as they have in those countries, they're still able to maintain that level of control in Iran. The level of the, the, the locality, those the local militias, the way they're able to use them, the fact that nobody else is armed in Lebanon and Iraq, lots of other people are armed. You end up with a situation in which uh, the, the government is able to control what's going on in Iran far more. And the scale of 
the uh, the demonstrations is impressive, but it's still something that is uh, that is basically hopeless. And I think the people in Iran recognize that those uh, those attempted revolutions, those demonstrations are basically hopeless. Because as long as there is a group of people who are willing to do anything it takes to stop the demonstrations, then then they will. Uh, and if you were to look at what happened in Eastern Europe, the military and the police and the army and these sorts of people were were not willing to shoot their fellow citizens. And because they didn't have that willingness baked in, they weren't willing to put down the demonstrations. You contrast that, for example, with Syria, where a, 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 a minority, the um, Alawite minority in Syria, or the Alevi in Turkey, as they're called, were afraid that they were going to be killed. They were going to be exterminated if the Sunnis took power. A legitimate fear, considering the history there. They were willing to do anything it took to maintain control over the country, including shooting unarmed protesters. They, they didn't have any compunction about that because the people they were shooting weren't their people. Likewise, those who are secular in Iran aren't the same people as the people who are devoutly religious. They might be related, they might, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, but they don't have the worldview uh, that enables them to, to see the other people as, as legitimate in their demonstrations against the country, unless the country is somehow seen as so thoroughly corrupt and against the service of its ideals uh, that, the, uh, that the, the lower class perceived militia will push back against it. So the question is, at the end of this, what would I do? What would be the situation? How would I respond to the situation? Uh, would I have killed Soleimani is one of the questions that's all, that's, that, sh- that should be asked if I were president. We'll get to that in a minute. But in my opinion, the obligation of the West is to empower the demonstrators, not with words of support, not with attacking the country. It's not our place to force Iran off of its addiction uh, or, to, or to break the besieged militias ourselves. But it's our obligation to give the Iranians a chance to reverse their mistake. And so I would support very strongly the United States, Israel, Iraq, whoever, anybody, importing weapons illegally uh, into Iran. You could airdrop them over Tehran. Um, if you arm the population, then the population has a chance to make a decision. There's many more people there than exist in the in the IRGC or in the Basij militia. If you give them the chance to fix their own problem, if you arm them so that they can fix their own problem, then you have done what you could to help out with a a possible revolution and an overthrowing of a corrupt system that is exporting terror all over the place. And so that would be my, my, uh, my response. However, there are other possible responses. Uh, You could look at regime change as one possible desired outcome in Iran, but there's also the ability to just let them run wild, which, uh, which I think is a very poor idea, or an attempt to contain them. And the sanctions contain their foreign adventures. They're, they're brutal on the local population, uh, which may or may not be deserving of sanctions in that way. But, you know, again, going back to culpability, perhaps they are. Um, but uh, the sanctions have been effective at limiting their ability to export and continue to support their, their franchises uh, in other countries. That said, if I were in Trump's situation, I would have killed Soleimani. And the reason is simple. Trump withdraws from conflict. He makes a lot of noise. He says a lot of stupid things, but he fundamentally withdraws from conflict. We saw this in Syria with Turkey. He wasn't willing to stand up for the Kurds. And if you are seen as somebody who consistently, regularly, and predictably withdraws, then your enemies are going to take advantage of that. We saw that in the Obama years. Obama would make less noise than than Trump, but he would draw his 
his red lines, and then he wouldn't honor them. And so everybody knew that they could continue to push on the Obama administration and redefine the layers of the lines on the ground, and a bit like boiling a frog, step by step, they'd be able to push in in Crimea, in eastern Ukraine. Uh, you, you saw the, the continued Russian expansions. Uh, you can see this uh, in, in, what, in what Bashar Assad did during that time. Um, you saw what China did during that time with the attempts to move into the Pacific and to establish these atolls and to begin to take territory the Philippines and the Vietnamese were claiming and the Japanese were claiming and continuing to push outwards bit by bit, step by step in a way that uh, never, no one step would result in Obama actually taking a strong action against them. So there's two ways to deal with that. One way is to actually go and have a fight over every little thing. The other way is to be unpredictable. If they don't know when you're going to have a fight, if they don't know when you're going to strike back hard, then your opposition or those who are competing with you in the international field are going to be much more reluctant to take the risk. But Trump had established a nice clear record of backing down. And so the killing of Soleimani put a a wrench in the predictability of Trump. And by virtue of putting a wrench in the predictability, it enables the United States, by being less predictable as a country, to uh, project power much more cheaply. You You don't have to use soldiers. You don't have to use guns. You don't have to use drones. The very fact that you might do something nuts is enough to make other people think twice before acting against you. The same thing applies, I mean, the most extreme example of this is in South is in North Korea. Kim Jong-un has a very small military. He's got a very small budget. He's got the city of Seoul within his sights, and he can kill many, many, many people very, very quickly. The fact that nobody knows how Kim Jong-un is going to react to something makes his country much stronger than it should be by virtue of its weight, its economy, or its military. The crazy factor gives him power. Likewise, the crazy factor gives Trump power. The limitation that you have, though, is that the crazy factor that gives Kim Jong-un power denies power to his own population. If you're looking at a Trump, the risk you have is that that unpredictability, which is so effective at establishing the U.S.'s power overseas, is by virtue of breaking down the rules that people expect, also applies domestically. And so you have a risk that that sort of governance will undermine the rule of law and weaken other institutions within the country. And so I think that Trump is very effective, um, but maybe not the kind of, uh, kind of ingredient that you want long-term. Thank you for listening. 